This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Hello, Jason here. Before I start the podcast, I would just like to share some news. The Brock Architect podcast is now raising money for the Architects Benevolence Society. And I have set a target of £1,500 by December the 15th, 2023. Please consider donating as you never know when you yourself would need help. Links in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. This is season two of The Broke Architect. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you f***ing broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broke and in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for, or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties, how is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe, and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Andy Holt, who used to be an architectural technologist and is now a hands-on CEO with expertise in delivering enterprise-level digital engineering and digital asset management architectures for complex project delivery. The founder of ReBIM Cloud Collaboration Software, ReBIM for SharePoint and Azurelope Limited, a domain expert in the field of data-driven enterprise asset management. Now, Andrew lives and breathes through the company's technology. Andrew has worked in various sectors, including nuclear, healthcare, civil aviation, defense, football stadia, hotels, commercial and office, food and retail, and high-value residential projects. And having worked in key roles on several several projects, you know, firstly, welcome to the second series of the Broke Architect podcast. And I just want to ask, how are you today? Hi, Jason. Um, thanks for uh, inviting me on the podcast, firstly. Um, I'm very good, actually, and uh, looking forward to the discussion. Great. So, Andy, what our listeners will want to know is, essentially, what does your company do and where can we find you on the internet? Okay, so uh, the company Azure Lope, um, it actually stands for, the name is Azure, which is blue, and then Lope is like loping along, like a, an antler running along. So it means blue flash. So Azure Lope is the company, and it's a consultancy. So we predominantly serve uh, owner operators or large infrastructure projects, big contractors uh, within the regulated engineering space. So a lot of our work tends to be helping nuclear, defence, rail make sense of engineering data management basically and information management. And that can range from uh, implementing digital solutions, including our own reading products, but not always. Sometimes, uh, like what we've done in defence, we've built like a private cloud with a, a number of tools, an integrated architecture or a service-oriented architecture, if you like. Mm. But we do all the upfront consulting for that. So we do um, like business change management, which is almost like enterprise architecture. We use a TOGAF standard. Business architecture meets IT, so how to implement them, that business transformation using enterprise IT systems. And we do a lot of advice on standards, data modelling, integration, all those kind of things on the consulting side. And then we've also got the Rebin product, which is it's its own brand, it has its own kind of sales cycle. 
its own website, often runs very separate. It's owned by Azure, but it can run just separate because it's a common data environment. So people just purchase that as a solution to run their own projects. Uh, sometimes we implement that within our own cons- uh, after a consultancy project. Um, both are obviously on the website, azurelot.com, reading.io, and then myself, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, really. Um, best place to get me is just on LinkedIn. Andrew Holt, it might be. Um, look for Azurelot or Rebim, and my contact details are on there. I've done an introduction for you there and you've done a hell of a lot and we know each other personally outside of outside of this podcast but you know please tell the listeners a little bit about your background and you know why first of all you wanted to design buildings. So I was always very creative school you know um, my strong points were definitely anything sort of uh, constructive physical items or physical 3D items art so my artwork was generally 3d and was very good at maths so i went to art college and i did maths and i did fine art and sculpture and 3d design and i was kind of destined to be some kind of designer engineering designer now when i finished those a levels uh, i needed a break from education at the time i kind of went through a you know one of these kind of team breakups with a girl and oh. anyway <laughs> as you do when you're sort of 17 18 and and uh, I needed a break and I got offered a job with my uncle so I went doing a mechanical engineering job first which was um, industrial extraction systems okay. um, I became a foreman on site which was quite a challenge so I ran a sort of a project for about a year and a half two years in Hartlepool a very big project and I was dealing with people that were sort of twice my age, so it was a bit of a bit of a problem on the authority front, but it was a right challenge for me. In fact, I've got a funny story about the reasons why I left that job that I think is important. It kind of cemented my reasons for going to university. Um, so the project up at Hartlepool uh, finished, uh, and I'd come away from it for a number of months, maybe like six months. Um, and another team went back. There, there were four large chimney stacks uh, at the end of the extraction lines, um, which reached, reached quite high, you know, in, in, into the sky. Uh, and they had to extend them by six metres, and they were sort of made of fabricated, quite like a metre diameter uh, circular steel flanged uh, three meters long each they're quite heavy uh, so two sections each if you like with these big bolted flanges on them and uh, they extended them by six meters and the team that went to to go there to extend them they had like a, a huge crane which was really expensive like a couple of grand a day or whatever for one of these cranes at the time probably three four times that now but this was back in the the kind of late 90s and they had like a basket which the tr- the crane could lift you up in because there, there was nothing that could kind of get up their height so they had to have this special basket which you could be uh lifted up so you could work at height on the on the crane hook quite crazy looking but you know the, the this is what they did the crane was in a, a neighboring business's car park they managed to get an agreement to do it anyway something went wrong the weather was bad the, the team wasn't focused and they couldn't get all the bolts in and the crane had gone so they just managed to pin these things on and my uncle said to me he said would you go back and, and problem solve it see what you can do see don't do anything crazy but just let me know if there's something that can be done so I went there for a week and with a small team and I got there and it was really high up, but I could see the problem. So, and they had a, a warehouse at this place with forklift trucks, these high bay forklift trucks that lift really high, really big warehouse, uh, massive. For, and I had a forklift truck license, so I got this forklift truck. And I managed to borrow one of these cages that you could put on the end of the forklift truck for lifting people up. Got that round the back, um, put the cage on it, put a three-tier extension ladder in the cage, 
And me and one lad got in the cage, got someone else to jack us all the way up as high as it could. And it wasn't high enough. So I had to, <laughs> this is crazy. I had to jack the three-tier extension ladder out of the cage up against this circular uh, chimney. And uh, yeah, I went up with a bunch of bolts in my pocket and a podger, which is like a spike that you you sort of hammer in to line bolt holes up with and a hammer and, and, and some spanners and things. Yeah, I went up there, tool belt, a, few, a, a bit of gear in my pockets and it was windy and <laughs> these stacks were moving and I had this ladder against it and the only thing that was stopping it slipping at high was me holding onto the flanges and trying to keep the ladder stable. It was absolutely nuts. I remember saying to myself, they couldn't get a crane back. It was going to cost my uncle a fortune. But I was just saying to myself at the time, like, I deserve better than this. What am I doing risking my life here, basically, um, for this job? And... It really helped me to make that decision to definitely pack it in and go to university. And I enjoyed it, but I really had to go to university. So I ended up leaving that. And when I was going to university, bearing in mind I'd missed a few years, all my mates had gone straight from college and I was a little bit more mature, sort of mid-20s right. at the time. And uh, I'd gone from a situation where I was earning pretty good money as a young lad, you know, considering everyone else was skinned going into full-time education with no money and it was a that was a big shock alone so i had i had two kind of passions i wanted to study architecture but i also wanted to study product design and my favorite artist still is really was hr geiger the guy who did aliens oh wow and he studied both product design and architecture and it was it was all over his his artwork if you know his artwork he created these landscapes where you didn't know if it was macro or micro yeah so i love that and given the fact that it was a bit of a mature student i had no money once i quit the job um, and also some poor beliefs from childhood I don't, I don't really want to go into that but you know like when you grow up I did, poor self-beliefs i chose the product design route not not to undermine product design because it became very important to me yeah but it was a quicker degree and i just looked at it and thought it, it was an easy out basically so i went to do product design uh but i did learn the most fantastic practical skills there following that i went into sort of furniture design and manufacture I then went into more sort of construction. I became a contracts manager, fitting out things like hotels and did a lot of work with task analysis with like airports and the NHS and things like that. Became a bit right. of a specialist on human factors, ergonomics and specialist task furniture. Um, and then from there, getting into more mainstream construction, I wanted to pursue the architecture. So... I decided to first do the, you know, the CIAT uh, uh, architectural technologist route. Yeah, so I went yeah. to night school, back to university night school, um, managed to get through that, which was a nightmare doing that and holding a full-time job. Uh, and then eventually I, I got on to, uh, that enabled me to get the CIAT, which was quite a good route in. Yeah. And it enabled me to actually start working within architectural practice. And eventually I got on the RIBA office-based assessment route down at Oxford Brook. So that there's only kind of one route to do this. So you can, have a, you can hold a full-time job and you study part-time for oh, REBA. Nice. So I, I sat out, I was doing the REBA part one, basically doing that. And, and that was when, when we met each other. I was yeah. working within big multidisciplinary practice. I don't know if you want me to name the companies, but very, very large, 100,000 staff worldwide, one of the biggest out there I was working for. Um, so I was doing mainstream architecture uh, and it was great, but it, 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 the issue with those projects, they were very big infrastructure projects, I felt a bit detached from the actual physical work. You know, mm -hmm. it was more office-based. I was, you know, centre of a city. Uh, it was very different to the hands-on work that I was used to. So the previous roles I'd, I'd had, I'd design everything, manufacture it all, look after the installation. It was very much 
uh, touching and feeling everything and I went from that to be super distant you know, yeah. it was almost like a, a project management role um, so yeah that's how we and of course we met uh, through a nuclear project and, and that's how it started really so I got I was always destined to do architecture yeah. and building design but it took me a few rounds so I actually went to university three times to get there incredible incredible and you know <laughs> we, we, we met each other I think we actually met each other in 2012 from memory and I needed at that time you know BIM was 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 coming into the industry yeah. I'd, I'd saw the I think I'd saw the possibilities but it wasn't really being used um, very much in the nuclear sector and we brought you in as a BIM super user that is the title we gave you <laughs> yeah. uh, for, for the, a nuclear project I was uh, designing and we had that we had this great design team you know and you came in and you I think I tasked you with upskilling the team because it was we were really in the sort of the beginnings of, of BIM you know I just wanted to ask how was the experience for you yeah okay so I really enjoyed that moment so I think we we got together it was either once a week or once a fortnight um, and I really enjoyed that because within the company I was working for, I was already, I was brought in to mentor some people. One of the reasons why I, uh, got, I got headhunted was because of my skills. I've always yeah. stood on my skills and I developed these extraordinary skills. So one of the reasons why I got brought into uh, the, the large organisation that I was working for in the first place was to mentor others and upskill that team. Um, so it really sat well with me when you asked me to come and mentor the project. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I, uh, I might go away and come back once every two weeks and there'd be a big long list as long as I am of <laughs> issues. And I, I found it really good and, and it, it was so important to me because it, it, I was transitioning into being less of a designer and more of a consultant by that point. Yeah. teaching people about processes and you know what can we achieve with uh, tools and digital you know kind of digital within construction became my niche yeah. and providing that mentorship was kind of a step forward um, it, it actually led to the sure. eventual form forming of my company that's where i want to go on to you know what happened next because i I wasn't, I was party to some of it. I could see things were happening for you, but I don't really know what the detail behind that was. So you, you said you, you finished the projects, you know, you upskilled people. Then you were, I think you talked about this with me about the software development, and then you created a company. Maybe expand on, on, on creating, creation of the software and the company. Okay. So. Uh, the, the, the funny thing is, so I, I first started the company, it's over 10 years old now, so it wasn't too long after we met. Right. However, it, it kind of sat dormant for 12 months. Um, and the original reason why I set it up, because I, I was a bit of a, I was a bit of a shed scientist, so I used to come up with like patent applications and things like this. And I'd spent quite a bit of money on a particular invention and a patent and everything. And I needed somewhere to register the tax losses, should it become profitable. So that's why I initially set it up. But I was also, at the same time, transitioning into this consultant. And I got an opportunity following that project to work with the nuclear client and go client-side. Uh, be a client-side, they call it intelligent client. It's like a client agent. What they do sometimes, they can either... As you know, you work for the organisation, yeah, you understand yeah, yeah, the organisation yeah. more than anyone, but they sometimes reach out to external experts to come in and be part of the client team. So I got this opportunity and I got interviewed for it and I, hadn't, I didn't hear anything for months and months and months. It was almost 12 months and then all of a sudden it came back, but I was also ready to start, you know, start trading fully in the company and leaving my employed position. <laughs> So when it come back, it come back as a contract position and I was ready to leave my position 
So it, it, it was like the stars aligned. I basically took it as the first contract through my limited company. Right. My plan at the time was to try and get under the skin of a large asset owner because my software plans were to serve that market. And I really needed to get under the skin of that organization from the inside. So it really served me. It was almost like where would be the perfect placement to understand where I need to be. So it all worked out. Yeah. And I pretty much learned everything there is. Well, not everything, but the vast majority of what I needed to know to serve a large asset owner like that in terms of data. You got this first contract job. Yeah. Um, so you got some cash flow. Yeah, cash cash flow is just essential. (laughs) Yes, it's it's king. You know, but but how difficult after that first contract was it to Mm. maintain this cash flow coming into into your new uh, company? Well, yeah. So initially, I was quite smart with the money. So I invested in uh, another little venture that um, we developed some fabricated buildings, you know, offsite fabrication and installation. And, and we ended up building a bit of team and that was bringing in extra money. Initially, cash flow was brilliant. So we, we, we ended up investing in that too. So I was doing the consulting, right. which was dominating my time, but I was always also dipping into this other thing um, and was able to sort of generate quite a slush fund and I built that slush fund out and I was looking for places to invest in. One of the ones was, like a lot of people do, look at property. But I decided, no, I've got to build this software. I'd have this idea. I mean, funny enough, I developed a, a proof of concept before I even started the company um, a long time ago and floated it. When I, when I got in this client role, I floated it by the, the pre-ops guys who, who, who were you know, the nearest to an operator. Yeah. Uh, and they thought it were a good idea. So I, I thought, I've got to run with this, you know, I built the concept. So I decided to exit from the other, like, ventures of providing those buildings and the design, the prefab stuff. Um, we did a lot of glass work, basically. Um, did about 50 projects in down in London and around the, the south. It was really good. Um, but I decided to exit that business because it was really, really... Uh, starting to how many people were, were involved uh, in four or five okay. it, 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 well four or five designers right and then there were lots of suppliers like we got glass made in Poland and all sorts of different places and right. lots of partners Halifax was all the metal work and things like that but I decided to exit that so I could solely focus on the software and that immediately dropped the cash flow and I had this slush fund and anyone that starts a piece of software, if you don't know anything about the software industry, you think, it, oh, I'll do it in, you know, <laughs> X amount of thousand. And then before you know it, I'd, I'd taken on a team, full-time software engineers and big money. Yeah. The first thing you realize in the software industry is a 23-year-old, but th- these are young people, 23, insanely talented, yeah. will get big day rates and if you don't pay them you don't get them so I was paying contract rates I decided to take take them on because you get them cheaper on PAYE um, but I was then committed and the cash flow we, we actually started really really funding the software in about 2016 okay. the end of 2016 and very quickly within 12 months we were, we, we were broke we, we spent everything and wow this is what happens when you get into industries you think you don't quite understand you know I mean I, I, I'd done a bit of coding myself before but trying to build you know like cot software like that is, is, is very expensive and most people need investment I was trying to bootstrap it with the consulting work and the, the money that we built up um but yeah, that the cash flow has has been tight from I'd say twenty sixteen right up until about two years ago, basically, maybe even a year ago. Andy, how do you feel about the description? I was a busy fool. <laughs> oh yeah, so the busy fool years. Uh, I know we spoke about this uh, before. So I, I would always say, um, with the benefit of hindsight, of 
trying to get something off the ground like that from, from nothing, that I would never go into an industry that I didn't have domain knowledge of. Because you, you tend to overestimate things, underestimate, sorry, underestimate what it takes to actually get something like that off the ground. Mm. And when you <clears throat> when you don't have that domain knowledge, you, you, you tend to be, you're not in a flow state. It's not your specialism. So you tend to be running around. And when I said I was a busy fool, what I meant was I had, after about, pretty quickly, within six months when we started to develop the software, we had like a, a first beta version of it, you know, and I, and I was desperate to get it out there. So I spent quite a long period, I'd say about two years, running around the country, trying to push this on anyone. And if you've ever studied any kind of like philosophies about getting what you want in life, you know, the worst thing you can do is appear desperate because mm. you, you just push people away, you know, so it, it, everything, whether it's, you know, Buddhism, Stoicism, you know, that there is a, a thing there that people can tell and maybe a bit of imposter syndrome, whatever. But I, yeah, I was trying to push this thing out there. So I was traveling the country. I, I remember at the point I had maximum points on the license. I was going to court to stop myself getting banned. Um, it, it was crazy. I was I was on the Pendolino to London, five o'clock in the morning, coming back at eleven o'clock at night. I was in, and and I was working, you know, sixty plus hours a week, achieving nothing, but and and I didn't know anything about sales when you first start. You know, everyone assumes. I, I know it's in. I'll talk about this in another point, but. I didn't have the the sale the sales background. I was a good consultant, but I would, I, and I was just charging around, um, booking meetings at my expense, and it it was, you know, and if I look at what I do now, I I can achieve I achieve, more in like a quarter of the time, you know what I mean? It, it's all about efficiency. So I yeah, I was a busy fool. I was doing things I shouldn't be doing. I was running around the country not eating correctly, you know, living on a service station diet. Yeah, I was a busy fool. So it's not good for uh it's not good for family and relationships as well as it when you're no. uh, working them sort of hours. Absolutely know? not. And and you're not you're not being good to yourself, but I I don't know if it's almost like just a part of life that so many people have to learn the hard way if you got everything right, what would you learn? You know, so I learned for those mistakes. Yeah. Paid for a few mistakes. Paid for my health. Some relationships. A lot of problems by being that busy fool, yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe maybe you can go into a little bit more detail of um, some of the examples of uh, the mistakes that you were you were making you know maybe it was during that time or or when you now sit back and reflect you know you really really wish you hadn't done that you see you know because we do learn from our mistakes so you know sometimes their mistakes are you you look back and think yeah fantastic Mm. but there must have been some mistakes you think what the hell was I doing (laughs) oh yeah yeah so uh, first thing on mistakes I think it's important not to beat yourself up about them you know what I mean you should only beat yourself up over a mistake if you haven't learned the lesson and you keep making that mistake. If you learn the lesson, you, you know, the idea of growth is you should be able to look at, back at yourself and laugh at yourself, you know, and that is a sign of growth. So, so that's the first thing. But yeah, the actual mistakes. One of the first ones, and I wasn't alone on this because there was another company. We, we um, a friend of mine had another tech business at the time. We're both trying to build software we were trying to share a few resources, so a few subcontractors, and both of us fall foul of this one. And it was, you can build the best software out there, the best tool for the job, right? It doesn't matter if you can't sell it. So not understanding the concept of minimum viable product, getting it to market early, getting early feedback, you know, it's almost like a, the agile way of life. You know, you're delivering 
a limited set of features, getting some feedback, refining them before, you know, you're not trying to build yeah. a whole massive piece of kit and then, because what I did, I built the software and I was like, great, right, it works. Showed my friends and people that I know in the industry, a few, a few clients, and I was like, right, where's my customers? And then the real work started, you know, I had to think, right, okay, I need to sell <laughs> these things. Yeah. Shouldn't we have been doing this earlier? So that is a classic mistake that I, I did. And and then underestimating all the mechanics of what it takes to sell something. So mm. these are classic business skills that have got nothing to do with tech or any specialist niche. They are classic. And, and, and the business skills that you need, the more psychological, you know, sales, relationship management, emotional skills that you need to build that are out with any technology. None of this is ever taught, by the way. Oh, it, no. goes, it, goes, it goes for architecture. And I could go into that, but yeah. <laughs> you weren't, your own admission, good at sales. No. And so did you buy in that, um, that service? And what was your oh. experience like on okay. buying in that? You just, yeah. So we had a very direct experience with this. Okay. So... At, so the, um, Gary, who's now my sort of, you know, he, he's so integral to the business, he's like the, my number two. He is uh, a corporate sales and business development guy, worked in huge, predominantly before he started working with us, he was, came from kind of the uh, healthcare insurance, you know, the, the big names in that industry where he was at the top. So he was used to corporate sales, mm. but he couldn't start uh, with me because he had one of these long contracts and then he had a, a clause in his contract where he couldn't, you oh, know. so he yeah. couldn't start, yeah. so, but he recommended someone. So he took on a, um, a sales team basically. And at the time, and still to this day, the market, as you know, is still incredibly skeptical on the types of products that we produce, right? They, yeah. they are still behind the times and the market wasn't ready for the volume of sales that we were predicting. And we took on a sales team and sales teams are expensive. So they want salaries because if you don't pay them, they just go and work for someone else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you've got to give them a salary and some kind of bonus structure and it just didn't work out because it's too niche. And the, the, you know, we're talking about taking someone who was good at sales, mm. general sales, but they just couldn't get their head around the, the industry and the product. So it really, really needed, needed me. But I gave them the benefit of the doubt and it didn't work out. That, that led to the worst times. At the end of that period, they ended up um, having to let everyone go in the company pretty much by a couple of people and rebuild the team from scratch. Because were, we, you, were you running up debts at that time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I yeah. sold, I, I had to put all my own, sell anything that I had personally and put it into the business and take a big bridging loan to weather the storm. Everything went wrong at that point. That was financially, on the, on the project side, everything was great. We were still doing fantastic projects for clients. I made sure that every client still got their projects done. So yeah. that wasn't affected. It was more software development, sales, all these kind of functions that we had to start again and rebuild. So yeah, we, came, we, we, we ran into debts. You know, when you're in the industry, you, you, you sort of, you've got a sales pipeline and the sales team said, yeah, we're going to get this, we're going to get this, and contracts are always delayed. And it just so happened that those contracts were delayed beyond what we could afford. So we had to let a few people go. And yeah. then the funny thing is, six months later, those contracts landed and the whole thing turned around. But by that time, we'd, we'd found a new team. Wow. Tell me about the dark days that you've had. Okay, so obviously this was probably at the the point uh, around about started to go wrong in twenty nineteen. So we'd made a few poor appointments. 
And I don't mean the people, because the people are very skilled. It was just the wrong thing to do at the time. We appointed a sales team when you know, the market just didn't have the numbers that require a full-time sales team. And obviously training that sales team became problematic um, because it was a very niche industry. Whereas what we really should have been spending the money on is more like core services and client support and delivering better quality, basically. Mm. Um, so that resulted in some quite some significant debts, basically, negative cash flow. Um, and it, at the time, I was obviously... Your mental health around. must have been screwed, oh, by the way, with that yeah. you know, debt. Yeah. yeah, my mental health was in the gutter at the time. I was running about the country desperate for sales and things. Mm. I wasn't being true to myself. Um, so, yeah, my mental health, self-worth was taking a tank in. Uh, so was my health because I was eating about... At the time, I remember saying to myself, um, just another year of this. And I'm quite good at single-minded focus or like focus on something. Um, and it might be, I've just got to build this product and I'll ignore everything else. And I almost sacrificed my own mental health and physical health for the good of this thing. And what resulted in the end, I got, I, I kind of, I'm going to say I got let down by a lot of people. Um, there were a number of problems within the business and also in my personal life, I got, I basically ended up, everything went wrong at once. And I had to fire, uh, fire, I don't like you to use it. We had to let go of people because, um, you know, being let down, underperforming, all that kind of thing. And yeah, my mental health was in the, in the gutter. And I remember turning around to Gary at the time and saying, listen, I, I, need, I need to sort of pull back a bit. Are you all right? Just stabilizing everything and allowing me to get myself together. And he helped me almost restructure the business as in um, consolidate the debts. I had to you know, sell everything that I had um, that I could get my hands on a lot and take mm. a, quite a big, almost like risky, it was almost like a loan shark type loan. You know, if, if you didn't pay it, you're in big trouble. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had to do that. And, and you were married at the time, I think? N- not married, no. You weren't, no. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, yeah, that took a bit of a sacrifice as well. And, and that was just because I wasn't, I wasn't the best person, you know. I, yeah. I, I had took my eye off the ball in a lot of areas in my life and a bit of single-minded focus. And it, it's funny because we, we all, like, it, you know, I, I don't know if this is, you know, it depends on who you are. People associate this with kind of like a male trait where you just, I think women are better at multitasking or managing different things. Whereas me, you know, as a guy, I, I tend to get single focused on one particular area and I went all in on that and forgot about everything else. Yeah. And I was gambling, I knew I was gambling. I kept thinking, I must get back to all these other areas. But just another few months, just another, and I was gambling. Yeah, and next I month. pushed it too far. Yeah. yeah, and everything went, and I kind of needed that reset, well, because that gave me the the whole reset thing gave me the motivation really, you know. It led to us restructuring the business. It led to appointing Scott, the the coach, and and changing the way we did everything. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it, it it was very dark. Was there any point, at, you know, when you're the deepest, darkest days of you know? looking at your bank statements, uh, taking on Loan Shark to, to stop fund the business when you just thought, what the hell do I do now? Yeah. You know, were, there, were them thoughts coming into your head? Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when we had the slush fund from the, from the consultancy work that we'd done and all the other projects, that, like I said, down, down in the south, and we developed quite a bit of money. And at the time I was considering investing in property. And the thoughts were, why didn't I just buy some houses? Why did I get involved in this software business? And 
I was kicking myself, yeah, but then I was like, no. I was trying to get the belief together. Yeah. And I basically just took a bit of time. I did one consultancy project in that period, and it was quite a small project. I didn't do anything else. I didn't really get involved in a lot of other areas of the business. Mm. And I just took some time to just take do some self-care basically so that's like you know I, I went on a massive self-care journey at that point um, immediately changed my diet and, and, and just you know read every day did the one consultancy project took a bit of time off Gary helped to restructure everything and then obviously after a few months I then started to engage in the coaching and when I found Scott it, yeah it, it, things really turned around. I mean, it, it seems so, it, it, you know, a lot of the things in life, uh, we know what to do. It's not a matter of education. It's a matter of habits and application. And it's so strange. Everyone knows, you know, yeah. about health and fitness. You've got to eat well. Yet, why do we still slip? Abuse ourselves in some yeah. ways. It's not yeah. a matter of education. So the things that I did with Scott, they weren't, no, they're not brain bricks, not something I couldn't just read on the internet or in a book. It was, he held me to account to put the habits in place. But I needed them first few months, if you know what I mean, when, when it was very dark. I mean, we'd shut the overheads right down, basically, so they were affordable. Uh, and then we spent a few months. And then, like I said, when we got into 2020, we got five projects all that came out of the woodwork all at once. And it was like, right, we're back in business. And we appointed a new team. And even at that point, I wasn't getting involved in all the projects. I was still doing my old self-care thing and chilling out. And maybe mm. what you did next was, I think, uh, I really want to hear about because you turned to a coach or mentor, yeah, um, which helped turn the business <clears throat> around, would you say? Can you just mm. tell me more about that? Yeah, so I'd say... Yeah, so from the, the worst moment, which was towards like a, a quarter four 2019, was probably the worst financial uh, tightness. Um, you, you couldn't see it from the outside because you know, I was just basically self-funding it and protecting the business. And then when we got into 2020, I was doing some ad hoc coaching and I was paying by the hour to various coaches right, on various things. And some of these coaches could be anywhere from $150 to $1,000 an hour. And I probably spent, well, I don't know, quite a substantial amount of money trying different coaches in 2020. Towards the end of 2020, I ended up appointing a coach and paying 12 months up front to save some money. Um, and that was my coach. So he's he's absolutely brilliant. I'm just gonna, I mean, I'll let you say his name. Yeah, Scott absolutely. Walker. Um, he's an ex-hostage negotiator. That's his book there. I brought it. He's it's um, a bestseller already. He's only just released it. Order out of chaos. He, so he teaches. Um, he's he's an ex-hostage negotiator, and if you think about negotiation, what what he does now is mentors business leaders. And if you think about negotiation, they have probably got the most high stakes negotiation. You might have someone with a gun to the head and they've got to convince them, you know, to release the hostage. And so their techniques, they teach like tactical empathy, um, all this stuff like emotional labeling, a lot of emotional intelligence. So he taught me emotional intelligence, specifically for getting what I want in life in terms mm. of negotiating and all these things like active listening and things, um, which helped me tremendously in meetings. Uh, but the other thing that he taught me was, he introduced me to some productivity techniques that allowed, to sh allowed me to shut my working week right down. Um, I've actually done some uh, little recordings and videos and some articles on, on this technique, but mm. I, I now use like a Kaizen sort of incremental improvement approach. And I focus on, you know, let's say the top three things of the day and I make sure I achieve them, right? And, and they don't actually take that long to do, just three focus blocks of time. Yeah. So all you have to do, 
anything else is, is filler work. I first introduced myself to these techniques reading Tim Ferriss about 15 years ago in our four hour work week, mm. which is you know, a good title, but it's not practical. Um, Scott really taught me how to put productivity into my life, but gave me more time back. And the, so he taught me productivity and how to negotiate with emotional intelligence. And the third one he taught me was the importance of your identity. So who you see yourself, it's, like, it's almost like a self-worth thing. Mm. So yeah. I went from being the person that was racing around the country, and desperate to how get- How many any, hours are we working? Well, yeah, yeah. Desperate to get any scraps I could to the person that now does, well, we're doing like defense contracts and stuff like that, who just gets the contract out of our own I believe in myself and the team and we became that we became that new identity and when you assume an identity you can just assume an identity if you know it inside that you've got the skills to do it mm-hmm. as you raise your identity you, your base level of what you achieve lifts with it so you end up with a new baseline so those three things yeah yeah I mean you know client side how can a client believe in you if you don't believe in yourself I think that's true of a lot of things in life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, see, you've talked about these, um, you know, these um, three things, you know, but what are the three focus areas of your life to create this success? Is it, is it the same thing you've mentioned or are, are these different things? Okay, so I guess this is what the three most important things that I do now yeah. to get to. Right, yeah, okay. that's better, yeah. Yeah. So, it, right. <laughs> For me, and I do believe this is true of a lot of people, number one, your health and fitness is so important to you. By the way, for the listeners, Andy's super fit here. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can say that. <laughs> Um, your health and fitness I take very seriously so that's eating clean diet is easy 80% of it maybe 85% of it you're eating clean it's like respecting yourself your body and your mind if you eat clean you think better you think clearer you know um, and your lifestyle getting good sleep exercise these, these are fundamentals because I realised in order to be have a clear mind and be productive, you, you need to be healthy, and then it clears your mind up, and then you can think better. So health and fitness, number one, that's body and mind. The second thing I would say, continuous application of habits, or uh, rituals, routines, and habits. So there is no quick solution to anything in life. It, it, it's it's habits it's being consistent and like the kaizen thing that i do you know it's the continuous application of those habits which i think you know so i i, I practice uh, continuous improvement in kaizen on everything that i do and i don't distinguish between personal and professional so i have projects and they may be about weight training or I'm doing jiu-jitsu or whatever. Mm. I also have projects on the house with family. Um, I have projects in terms of my reading. I have projects on business projects. Uh, I also have uh, like a client project. They're all the same to me. They're all projects and they all get... Um, yeah, so I use this uh, system. For, it's Tony Robbins, actually. I don't know if I'm going to mention that. Yeah. Knows who Tony, he has something called Rapid Planning Method which is a fabulous way of uh, creating these RPM blocks. So then, uh, and I mix Kaizen in with that. So then I've found a nice blend of, and, and I can apply that to anything, any area of life. Um, so that's what, yeah, that's what I do. So yeah, the health and fitness. Fundamental foundation. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a routine as well, you know, like a, I have like a morning routine, so I get out in the garden as long as it's not raining, <laughs> and I'll do journal yeah. every day, morning and night. I've got the RPM, which is all my plans and my notes, and 
looking what so I do an RPM right down to the week or the day, yeah. like what I need to achieve. And then I do a lot of reading as well, because I do believe in educating. So I've got that routine, I've got the health and fitness, and then it's a continuous application of those habits. And just, just for the listeners, you know, how <laughs> how many hours would you work in a typical week compared to how many hours you worked before you had this business coach? Yeah. So I've got to be careful, I don't want to self-incriminate myself because clients <laughs> expect me to be working around the clock. <laughs> well, I, I, I can literally do a 60-hour week in 12 to 15 hours either, just, yeah. By, yeah, just by applying these techniques. I, I can achieve more now in a few hours a day. And, You're highly productive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just focus blocks of time. Yeah. And because you're, like, typically in an office job, uh, people get in in the morning, they make a brew, and, and they're going through emails. Now, unless the email, Tim Ferriss taught me this, to batch emails. He, he said, don't do emails till one o'clock in the afternoon, because most of them get resolved. The only thing you should be focusing on is your top three things. Yeah. And then, and even the RPM system, you write down this, this, this like, it's like a to-do list, but it's actually just a menu of items to pick from because it's result focused to get the result. If there are 10 things on that list and you get there with two or three, you ignore the other seven. You don't have to do them. It's not a to-do list. It's a result focused approach. So having that kind of yeah. result focused approach allows you to cut out the vast, you're going for the things that move the needle. You know, what is the thing that's gonna make the difference in your life rather than could answer this email. I mean, some emails you have to answer, but I've got to do this. I won't mind doing you know all these little things that people do in a day. They're yeah. not actually that important. If you look at the average job, there's probably only two or three productive hours in any day. So just do them two or three productive hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which some in some jobs you can't do. That no. is that is the problem. Employed, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get that. How do you attract the best talent into your company? This is a difficult one. So I've been through, we, we've been through, uh, let me think. Whilst many people have been through three big changes in the team, when you first start a company, right, no matter how good you are, it's very difficult to attract the best talent for two reasons. First reason is you probably can't afford them because the big companies and the big consultants can pay the big salaries, you can. And the second one is you, you, you almost, you, you need to build some credibility that no one trusts a small business. You know, they're thinking if I go work for them, it's a big risk where I can go and have a, an easy life at the, with all these benefits and I'm not gonna get, you know, even if they are, going to fire me I'm going to get a payoff or whatever at a big company so, it, so it's very hard yeah. so when we first started out you, you literally just have to pick whoever you can get and you end up getting people who are you know late or what you go for is skill but then you might you, those people might have good skills but trade off might be the personality or they just don't turn up in the morning or something like that and they're a nightmare so, so as you get progress through the business you tend to attract better staff anyway our current team the core team they're all incentivized they're all like um, getting shareholding so I believed that the I found a team now that are so uh, they're all like incredibly talented in what they do and the way we work together you know it, it's really good and the incentivization is I want them to be rewarded as a result, so you, even now, you know, you, we have to give that incentivization to get the best talent, because again, if you don't, they'll go and work for a big consultancy, unless there's something, unless they've got skin in the game. Mm. Now you can't do that with everyone, but yeah, your key people, it's very important that they yeah. feel the part in. And, and the other one I would say is obviously, like your approach, I'm very hands off. I'm not a micromanager at all. I, I, I literally never. I won't. I don't even speak to people really that much. You know, just just on the phone. Um, you might notice one of our guys, Oliver, is trying to bring me. 
I try and inspire people. It's like Ollie, who <coughs> works for us now. He's fantastic. He's like he's like the young me. He, if you like, he's a pretty boy, so he's like the fit. He, he looks good in me. <laughs> but he um, he's young me. He uh, he looks up to me, and I like that because he's he's you know he's come from a consultancy and software background. I just want to inspire him, mm. inspire everyone with the vision, and I do believe that that's better than you know, trying to crack the whip and be a micromanager. Oh, couldn't agree with you more on that one. Maybe before we go on to the next question, you know, let's just come back to the health side of things. You know, okay. you're, uh, I can see you work out at the gym, Andy. It's uh, very evident there. But, you know, how has it helped? The, how has the exercise and that healthy living really helped you with the business? So yeah, I, I uh, for me personally, uh, the health and fitness has become like, like I, I train twice a day. I get up really early, like five o'clock. I do jujitsu, and then straight after I go and do my uh, gym weights routine, and then sometimes I do a jujitsu at night or extra weights at home. So it's, I don't do that every day. Um, but I do, let's say I do gym four or five times a week, mm. usually four. Um, I don't do, I don't overtrain, so I, I don't go into detail, but I keep it quite limited. Uh, I've got a good training split. And then jujitsu is more like a skill, mm. um, but it's very demanding as well, physically demanding. Um, and that is so important to me. The other, the other thing is, um, I, I'm an amateur biohacker, if you know what that means. No, please, yeah. <laughs> so biohacking um, is trying to optimise your lifestyle and your health. And there's two parts to it. The first part is like, um, don't die prematurely. So you're trying to like, you know, not get cancer. Or, right. So obviously don't smoke or don't drink or cut out drinking. Try and have a low inflammation diet. Yeah. So that means whole foods rather than um, processed foods. Yeah. All that kind of thing. So I try and eat as clean as I can, and I have I do get my bloods done, measure, take certain supplements that optimise my life, plus a few other things like focus on sleep quality, um, fasting, all the all these things. I don't want to go into too much detail, but I'm an amateur biohacker. The other side to biohacking is life extension. I think if you get them nailed, and because uh, you want to no matter how old you live to you want to be you don't want your body to fail before your mind does you want to kind of want them to go together don't yeah absolutely so that's, that's the idea the, that's the and yeah. I think it's so essential it, so how do you translate that into business so I think any walk of life if you have a discipline of consistently like the discipline includes not overeating so making sure you don't consume more calories than you actually need. Yeah. Um, staying healthy, eating well, rather than, oh, I'm just going to eat some chocolate or whatever. Just have the discipline to say no. Uh, and then the other discipline is the training. That discipline, I think people can tell. Like, I, I wish the world wasn't like this, but people treat you differently if you have that kind of discipline. And I think it translates to discipline in other areas. Mm. so in terms of business you know it allows me to be super focused like I, I sat an exam uh, two days fasted you know the TOGAF exam yeah yeah. I sat the TOGAF exam two days fasted all I'd had is water I think I was probably getting on for three days fasted and I was super sharp I deliberately uh, did it's it something like that we have in common because I fast twice a week, uh, 20, <laughs> 20 for 36 hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, no, yeah. It's, uh, when you look at this, I mean, you know, obviously it allows you to consume a few calories, but if you look at the science, it's absolutely a good practice. You don't need yeah. to do it a lot, but yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's so important, but it to me, it gives you, um, you feel better, you respect yourself. And I think people know there's, a, there's kind of an inner goes back to that inner self-worth thing, you know, so when you step yeah. in a client's office, they trust you more because you've got that discipline. But do you regret leaving architecture? <laughs> do you want a quick answer? No. 
is the answer. No, not at all. Um, and why is that? You know, why? Well, okay, so I love architecture. I love anything. I've been a designer all my life, right? Different, different types of design. And I love it. But somehow I don't miss it. I feel like I've found my calling. Um, and also because of the years that I've put in, I just feel like I've done enough. And I have questioned if I could go back to it, but I've found a new path now. Um, I mean, so I now design software and having been a product designer as well, it's all the same language to me. You're creating something. Um, I don't, I don't regret it at all. But I think that's more because I love what I do now, even more than I ever have. On any, we could both go into how you can improve architecture, because it is a beautiful subject. It is. But the practice of it is different. Yeah. In reality. Yeah. And and we could both go into how that could be improved. Whereas the lifestyle I now have from this new industry, you know, well, don't forget, I'm still in the same, you know, we are serving the same clients. You are. Yeah. Yeah. But you're, you're, you're different the technology role. side and yeah. And, and yeah. When I was a supporting role on the sides. Yeah. To, yeah. to enable great, great buildings still to exist. Exactly. You know, so my last question really is Andy you know what are your plans for the future mm. and do you have I think I hear a lot of this from business owners you know what is your exit strategy you might not be able to share that with us on the podcast because <laughs> you've got existing clients but in just in broad terms mm. do you have one for example yeah I do I think it's important to have an exit in anything really or at least an idea uh there are some businesses where people just, you know, it, it basically is just a lifestyle business and they just carry on for as long as they can until they get fed up. I don't, I think everything, you should have an exit. Or at least, the, the famous book, um, Burn the Boats, right? And my coaching, including a lot of other people, believe that. You know, burning the boats is not always the best plan, which I also agree. Sometimes it is. There are times when you burn the boats. I, I, I burnt the boats with a software, I went two feet all in, and I was in debt, and I managed to come out the other side, right? But that was because it was my baby, and I could burn the boats on, on it and commit to it. Yeah. Whereas if you are business partners, you can't burn the boats, because you, you, need, you always need an out with a business partner in case it goes sour, or any partnership, yeah, any relationship, yeah. you need an out. And it, it's like any relationship, you need to have options. And so yeah, I have an out, I have an exit, I have an idea of exit. And so what do I, what I want is to be remembered for contributing to the industry, right? And I can only take the software so far with my own resources it is possible that we could organically grow forever and ever and ever yeah but it, it's very difficult to sort of get the growth and outpace the real big you know you've got some super global companies out there so my plan what would be great i take it as far as i can and i've got a valuation in mind if you like mm. and i've agreed this with the lead team because they're obviously getting a shareholding and they need a minimum payout uh, if it if it if all going well we reach that valuation we want everything to go to the next company that's got bigger resources that could take it to the next level yeah so i don't want i don't want it to end but i want it to have a new like sort of life, life. Yeah, 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 new life it, 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 with bigger resources, and and I think that's that's normal for technology. You know, technology gets acquired by a bigger company, um, as a next life, and that would be fantastic. I'd love that, and yeah, yeah, and future. I do have some other ideas that I want to do as well. Oh, what other pursuits? Yeah, yeah, some other business ideas. Um, but but one of the one of the things that I just want to say about this 
um, because of the way that I've built the whole lifestyle for me and the team, and particularly me, it's now at a point where it's sustainable. So I've got my health dialed in, the biohacking, and- You're not in debt. Not in debt, and there's no stress, right? So I could happily do that. I, I am not looking to retire. I don't think, I'm fed up with this, I've worked too well, I want to retire. I don't have that feeling. I, as long as I'm functioning, I could do this when I'm 80 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think the sustainability of it is great, and I can just keep building products or building the next business or whatever. And I can carry on. Yeah, that's another thing as well. The future is sustainable. What a wonderful way to <laughs> end the podcast, Andy. I just want to thank you for being on the second series of the Broke Architect podcast. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for inviting me on. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. Okay.